Okay, let's do this thing. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Professor Eugene Fitzgerald, the CEO and Director of Singapore MIT Alliance for Research and Technology, which boils down to smart. In my next life, I want to be the guy that comes up with these names. Just if for no other reason than just to make me feel smart, which I don't feel right now. Anyway, it's okay to call you Gene. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Great to be here. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we dig deeply into like the main topics, can we get a little bit of your background for some context? I am from the United States outside of Springfield, Massachusetts. Grew up there. It's like a lot of other people, nothing, nothing unusual. And uh, was the second person from my high school to ever get admitted to MIT as undergrad. <laughs> but it's all I ever, you know, I was always this kind of kid with the chemistry set and the and the electronics set, that's all I ever wanted to do. And uh, so I was, you know, just, that was my focus. And it was great, went on to get a PhD because, you know, I went to MIT. I was like, I gotta get a job after I get out of MIT, but I was doing pretty well. And then one of my professors said, you should pick up grad school. And I was like, grad school, what is that? And so then I ended up getting my PhD at Cornell. Good for you. And then and then my dream was always to to go work for some important, you know, uh, company, and and you know, and these kind of you know things you think about when you're younger. Just I want to invent something important, you know, <laughs> and uh, kind of went to um, Bell Labs, and then um, when the the world changed and and kind of corporations stopped doing you know these kind of long term big research investments moved back to MIT to be a professor and an entrepreneur eventually and got involved with Singapore in the very first program in 1998, which is a predecessor to SMART. And then uh, did a SMART program in 2012. And then after that, they asked me to run the, the whole thing. So it's a quick, quick overview. So my family's from Boston. My mom and dad grew up in Mattapan. You can imagine how old they are. But where near Springfield did you grow up, just for my edification? Yeah, I grew up in a small town called East Longmeadow. I love where, it. Yeah, it's and, and you know, Springfield, I think the economy grew last with, uh, you know, during the Revolutionary War when it made the Springfield firearms, right? So it's a very okay. kind of, uh, slow, depressing area. I remember walking out to the mailbox when I was applying to colleges. And I was pretty sure that I was going to get into most of them. I'm sure like you, you did well in high school. You, like you said, you had the chemistry set there. You love this kind of stuff. Do you remember that feeling you had when you walked outside? I mean, maybe your mom and dad actually preempted you and grabbed that letter from the mailbox and came in and was like, you got in. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that. It's like one of those things, you know, that I think gets burnt into your brain, especially for me, because I, you know, for whatever reason knew I wanted to do technology from a very, very young age which now I realize highly unusual with my own kids <laughs> but uh you know I was like you know just always well really wanted to do that and yeah. so you can imagine for me I remember opening it up and MIT had a special it was like at that time you know like a little larger thing it was like a little plaque or something I was right. like wow I was like this is I was stunned actually stunned <laughs> The reason why I wanted to ask this, right, is because I think people sometimes forget just like back then. Today, there's probably a portal. You probably get an email and you oh, have yeah. no choice. But back then, you literally could go out to the mailbox every single day and just be like, not yet, not yet, not yet. But when you <laughs> get it, because it's a yeah. dream for for kids, particularly whether it's MIT or some other amazing university to get in. And over time, you've basically been there for the rest of your life, right? So... It's so cool for me. And Bell Labs is really a manifestation of excellence at scale back then. And you yes, also worked at Watson. So you did all these, like, what's yeah. the right thing? Like, these amazing things back yeah. then, no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bell Labs is the kind of image of where I wanted to go. And yeah. I, I remember just, like, it's, it's kind of equivalent to what you were just saying about getting accepted to MIT. I remember my first day... It's another one of those moments where I walked into Bell Labs and I had my employee badge with right. my picture on it. And I was like in core Bell Labs where, you know, it turns out my lab also was where the transistor was invented, one of the shared labs that we had. And, you know, I was ever looking at that and saying like, wow, this is, 
this is crazy. So it was another moment like that. Of course, the opposite moment is, you know, when corporations stopped investing. It was very sad when all these classic places, years later, I went back to visit Watson, which of course had changed. Right. And Bell Labs is, you know, you've devolved. And so, um, you know, that's the other side of the equation, you know, kind of like, but, you know, that's another thing about the life terms of you know creating new things being entrepreneur doing those kinds of things you know so you gotta gotta face reality and say look if i want to pursue new things if i want to think about the future if i want to build towards that future really in hindsight you're going to have to leave organizations that you've been in right so there's there's no choice but this is all part of being an entrepreneur right Back then, there were plenty of people that were still at Bell Labs, that remained at Watson, that remained at IBM and said, I'm just going to keep doing this until the end. And there's some realization inside people that do. Remember, you said when you were a kid, like you wanted to invent something and build something big. Yeah. The whole goal is to just find the platform and the place where that's possible, as opposed to just staying with what's existing. And you're right. A lot of innovation, and I think this is cyclical, has moved away from places like Bell Labs, where C see you know, all this kind of amazing stuff where all this stuff was invented, then it moves out to smaller companies. And at some point, those smaller companies then become big companies. So it's just a different stage of development. But I'm really curious how you actually ended up in Singapore. Is it in 1998, which was 25 years ago? Or was it in 2012? Like, how did all that happen? And what's the genesis of Smart in Singapore? So I can learn more about that as well. Okay. So I went back to MIT to be a professor in uh, 94. That's when I kind of anticipated it wasn't, Bell Labs hung around in its current form a lot longer, especially with yeah. the telecom bubble, really allowed it to not fix a lot of the issues there. And, and you know, some things it wasn't going to fix because of the, the economy was changing and everything. So I kind of left and uh, that was 94. And then 98 is when the uh, Singapore MIT Alliance, you know, SMA, just not having the RT yet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, formed. And uh, yeah, the way that happened was my field, my own field originally is electronic materials and semiconductors, right? Yeah. So um, at that time, and this is the kind of, uh, I think, I think a lesson because I continue to do it, which is you have to brace uncertainty, right? So I kind of said, look, here I am doing important things. You know, what I did at Bell Labs was already important. And there was a lot of interest in, in what I invented. But I said, if you look at what's happening in the globe, you know, a lot of the manufacturing for semiconductors, you know, we're just seeing this geopolitically now, right? But <laughs> it was it was like in the 90s, very obvious that there was a lot of manufacturing being set up in Asia. I said, look, I have no, I have like no connection to Asia at all. In the early days of the SMA, which um, it was started really between Bob Brown, who was um, eventually provost at MIT, and uh, Tony Tan, who was a deputy prime minister, a famous uh, deputy prime minister, as you know, in, in Singapore, uh, and did many things at different positions in Singapore, obviously. And they they were the ones that uh, first conceived of of having MIT be collaborating with Singapore. And so um, I was asked by some of the people forming that program because I had an interest in semiconductors. Maybe I wanted to, um, you know, be part of that program. So that's that's how SMA started. It was first collaborative, but there was no physical infrastructure in right. Singapore. So it was just we collaborated and traveled back and forth. We taught together. Um, and then later, after 10 years, after that success, we had relationships, things like that. Then SMART was created where they said, okay, well, what, do you want to have uh, possibly physical infrastructure in Singapore? Then that collaboration uh, was started. So SMART with the RT is sort of now the physical embodiment of, of that. So it's like the next step. For me, it was just I wanted to first get out and understand Asia and Singapore seemed like a very a good place to start off with. And then the rest of history. Yeah. And of course, you know, with semiconductors, what I was doing, I've traveled all around Asia after that. What was the perception that you have, or you had, excuse me, back in 1998 about Singapore, right? In other words, like my first time in Singapore was December of 1990. It's a long time ago, right? But by the time we get to 1998, the whole economy in Singapore is changing. It's moving from manufacturing and they've already made this decision to move into sort of 
right? Because you had creative technologies that was there that were building all this pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. By the time you get to 1998, what was your perception? And when you finally started going there, like what changed in your mind where you were like, okay, this is actually going to be a big thing? Well, so I, I wasn't thinking initially, remember like what I was saying so much about Singapore, I was initially just thinking about Asia. I need to get out there. Yeah. Right? yeah. So when I started learning more about Singapore, I was fascinated actually. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this place is so small, but it's uh, the way to think about my history of Singapore is that their interests were always kind of where I was going. So in other words, in the research phase, when they were ramping the, the research element with MIT in, in, uh, in 98 uh, to, to 2008, I was kind of like already in my own mind because of my Bell Labs work saying, well, the kind of linear research model that we've been using in the past really isn't good enough. Singapore wasn't worrying about that initially, right? And so it was kind of following that, but I was still building our innovation work ahead of time. Then, you know, kind of Singapore entered this phase, okay, now we have the R&D infrastructure, now we're interested in, you know, how does that translate into economic and other kinds of impact in society? Right. And I was already kind of thinking that, so I think it's just like, our, we were in phase basically, and that's how I got drawn more and more. So th that's how I looked at it from my perspective is sort of the leading edge of where Singapore wanted to go was always moving and being my same interest also. Did you, and you know, back then there was also the specter of TSMC, right? So the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing was a corporation company. I can't remember anymore because I just called TSMC. But did you have a vision back then as well, particularly coming from a semiconductor background of what that was going to end up being too? I can't even remember what it was like back in 1998 or even earlier. I mean, the foundry business was absolutely there to people at semiconductors. It's the new model. And there's actually two, um, UMC and TSMC were both kind of neck and neck back then. And in my first startup, I, I started uh, going to visit both because we're doing some research at MIT, we were doing some some sort of uh, uh, what I call like, um, you know, fabbing it in, in sort of a, a non-university environment in Singapore. And then they had chartered semiconductor back then in Singapore. So I talked to them. So I was totally into the foundry model saying, look, you know, this is the future. We have a new technology, which turns out to be in all of our chips today. But at the time, UMC and uh, TSMC were more aggressive at partnering. Yeah. So we ended up talking to them a lot. Yeah. So it goes way back to that. I learned a lot about, you know, here I was for us, it was all about, you know, we have intellectual property, but we want to deploy it, you know, in fabs. And I didn't understand back then, you know, like you said, it's pretty new and culturally, you know, here I am, this America guy talking about intellectual property up front. I realized pretty quickly, right. you know, like I should be doing that, <laughs> you know, I should be establishing relationships with these companies in Taiwan in a different way. Yeah. But I was a pretty young guy, so I didn't know any of that. Right. So, and, and the cultures were different. Right. So what were the conversations like? Cause again, you're coming to Singapore and let's use it as a proxy for Asia. Right. Which is something you didn't know that much about. Now, you know, a ton about obviously. Right. Yeah. At some point, and I don't believe in epiphany, but I do believe in acquiring knowledge over time and then having that knowledge, particularly for people that are intellectual, at their core, figuring out like, hey, the thing that I thought was true, all this information that I have now means that it probably wasn't true. But now you have to convey that back to, I'll say, the home office, right, in Massachusetts. I'm curious what those conversations were like. And, and I'm aware that back then there was still, and probably still is today, this thing we call Route 128, right? With the information highway on it and all the other stuff that's going on at the MIT Media Lab and things like that. But I'm just curious what the conversations were like about Asia going back to the US where you had to maybe convince people like, hey, this thing is going to be huge in the next 20 years. Yeah, so I guess with uh, at those times, I was um, a researcher uh, with other researchers working. So I wasn't um, in sort of management or anything like that, right? Yep. So I'm... I'm just giving my personal vision. The great thing about, you know, I think being a faculty member and especially at MIT where every faculty member is essentially really running their own business, which people don't realize, right? But it's, you know, the classic thing about MIT was, you know, MIT gives you a shingle to put your name out front and then, you know, go get your revenue and and do your really? thing, right? And 
Yeah, yeah. And, and it's gotten a little bit more, I would say, vertical in a way um, over time because just necessity of, of bureaucracy to a certain extent. But it, it, when I went there, it's, when I was an undergrad, it's like super flat. I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's like there's professors and there's like a president. <laughs> it's like very... <laughs> very flat basically in that and in that 90s was still kind of like that so i would say uh, i'm not really i'm kind of telling people how i'm learning and and what i think of things um and uh, definitely in the early days there was some faculty that thought that we should be doing anything overseas and, and most of those faculty had been in the in the World War II post World War II time period, where they still had um, conflict in their memories, and I mean MIT played a, a really important role, right, in World War II for strategic things, right. So uh, there was just a very end tale of that when I when I was there. To me, I was kind of like, yeah, university has people, you know, it's like you get tenure, right. So it, it, it I, there was a sort of like I don't know, I I did feel a little bit like I had more of a view of the future yeah. for sure. And so, and I got drawn in, as I explained before, more and more into Singapore for, for the, the way it was advancing. Yeah. So I think the conversation was mostly colleague to colleague and, um, you know, I think the beginning smart program was kind of really, you know, I think uh, Tony Tan and, and, you know, MIT really, you know, Bob Brown, especially had quite a, a vision there that was going to be very successful. It's just that, you know, with vision like that, it always takes time for yeah. people to see that. It's time for it to evolve. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone's an overnight success 10 years later, right? There's no such yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But it really is, though. What Can you tell me what the startups were that you did? And, like, were they in the material science space and in the semiconductor space? And then how did they lead into what's going on today? If Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's... So this gets back to Bell Labs a little bit. Well, even to grad school. So when I was at grad school, I started collaborating with, um, I had done, as MIT undergrad, I had done an internship at uh, TJ Watts and IBM's research lab yep. in, in New York. And that was like fantastic. That that kept my, remember this, this, this vision that I had, I'm going to yeah. work for a foreign corporation, do important research and invent things, right? So that was fantastic. I kept that dream alive. And then when I was in grad school um, at Cornell, I started um, collaborating with uh, a guy named Jerry Woodall, who is a national, now a national medalist, U.S. national medal technology. But at that time, I don't, he had definitely not won it yet. And so, you know, he was this like uh, really fantastic mentor. And I just said, yeah, this is it. You know, important guy like Jerry at that time had like zillions of patents at, at IBM. And and there was this, you know, looking at these materials going forward, it was clear that people wanted to use more kinds of electronic materials and not limited to um, everything up to that point, materials that were had the same size, sorry for a little technology here, but Go for it. The, the same size um, crystal structures, right? And so um, silicon and uh, these materials called three fives that are like gallium arsenide, all those things, the the device films that people were depositing on top were fairly limited. People could see, well, if I could deposit all sorts of these other semiconductors on top, then we could build new kinds of products. So in those days, when you went to Bell Labs, it was what I call the sort of a venture model of research. They would sit you down and say, you know, you have to be great, right? <laughs> it's kind of strange to hear today, right? But it's like, they literally sit you down and so you better be great. Otherwise, we're going to move you out to like, really? you know, normal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would say, you have to do something that's important in the world and also to AT&T. Right. And so I sat down with my immediate manager and said, well, you know, this sort of these semiconductors that are different, have different lattice constant, different size crystal structure. They're going to be important in the future. We have to figure out how to improve them and the problem was there's a lot of defects and all this sort of stuff. And then if we did, we could open up new routes. You know, we didn't really know exactly what applications, but we knew that there was zillions of them. So if we just progressed far enough, you know, some value would be produced. And my manager said, 
uh, go ahead. So that's kind of how this direction uh, started. We ended up inventing something called strain silicon initially at Bell Labs at four Kelvin, which is uh, so cold. It's, you know, just above absolute zero where there's no motion of anything. And, uh, but we demonstrated that the uh, silicon could have extremely high mobility. We got the highest mobility of the, in the world. What that means is we had electrons that, you know, carry charge and they moved uh, extremely fast through silicon, kind of pointing to, for, for those of us into this stuff, that, wow, if you could bring that up to room temperature, you could change, you know, Everything. CMOS electronics. And CMOS is, you know, what all of our microprocessors are built out of and all this sort of stuff. So that was the beginning of the dream from these very exotic kind of physics experiments to dreaming of that impact. I found out, of course, after that, you know, it became, you know, world famous, we got lots of credit and all this sort of stuff. But I started making, you know, some trips out to Allentown where manufacturing was done. And, and you know, I was just a young guy, right? So I was, hey, man, like, this is like fast electrons. Like, don't you want to put this into your products? <laughs> and they're like, they're like, what? You know, and then I started realizing, oh, I see like the path from research to market, which ended up being a theme for the rest of my life. You know, the path of sort of research to market was... Uh, more complicated than than a linear model of research, where people believe, right? So, how does this work, though, right? Because I think this is a this is sort of an enigma for people, right? You do all this incredible research, right? I, I'm I'm probably going to get some of these terms wrong, but you make this determination that says there's a way that there's a surface that's been created with these crystals, the silicon, right? And the electrons move between them. If we can get them to move faster, if we can get them to move at room temperature, yeah, because what do you say, four Kelvin? It's really cold. But yes. but everything we do exists at room temperature at some level, right? Maybe it's refrigerated yep. a little bit. But if we can get that to happen, we can change the future of the way electronics work and then create products we haven't even conceived yet. Totally. But, but explaining that to people that are just like selling stuff, it's just hard to get that message across. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of how to go from research into commercialization and some of the places along the way where people don't understand where the roadblocks are, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and this is a, you know, a lifetime of learning, right? Oh, so yeah. I'll try to try to summarize it. So I would say that, uh, first of all, the, the desire to do this, I had some colleagues that I worked with and they kept asking me like, why are you doing this? Like you could just lecture for the rest of your life on strain silicon and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I didn't have an answer for them, but I, you know, this is another, why was I interested in that? Why do I always want to build things? That that I don't have an answer for, but probably has to do with my background or whatever. So, you know, I was sort of this single guy. I mean, I, and I had no idea as to the scale required. That was the other thing. How would like, you know, though? I, how would I know? I, and it, it, you hear this from entrepreneurs all the time. I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur back then, by the way, because I'm in a large corporation. But I go... Ah, it doesn't matter. I said, you know, somehow this is going to happen and it does happen. So, you know, we just have to figure it out. And, you know, I, I'll tell you one of the things I couldn't believe was that I couldn't believe they spent all this money on research, but they didn't think about how stuff moved to, to market. It shocked me as a young guy. I thought, well, I invented something important now. It has to have a path. And I went to my manager who was a physicist and he said, Go talk to the marketing people. So I went to talk to the marketing people. This is unbelievably funny, right? I mean, I literally went to talk to people. Now, AT&T made all their money at that time from uh, long-distance service, right? It was trying to become a real company. It started trying to become a real company, so it's trying to win. Thing. But it couldn't It couldn't win in anything, right? And, and so the marketing guys looked at me like, you're talking about some future electronics that may benefit our telecom systems like way down the road. They're just like, you know, it was instructive to me because I understood that right. the thing that really started bothering me was that, uh, and, and, you know, something that I learned, the closer you are to the customer, the more money you made, even though you could be driving the place into the ground, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, that's one thing I learned in this whole process, but the, so then I said, all right, you know, I'll do it step by step. I went out to the factory, but then you realize, you know what, if you put new stuff into the factory, their jobs are on the line, right? So you can't have this sort of, you know, academic 
you know, you just don't understand because it's a typical thing, right? On our side, you know, oh, you just don't understand the importance of the future and all this sort of stuff. I mean, because they're like, look, if I put this new stuff in here and it ruins my yield on my normal product, I'm done. Then I'm done, yeah. right? So then you realize it's a much more complicated process, which we ended up formalizing. Today, we use that in SMART to try to launch projects ahead of time. We can talk about that later if you want. Please. Yeah. So it's sort of like, how do you do research to have, how do you launch research five, 10 years ahead of time so you have a chance for having higher impact? It's a way to do research. People think that this sort of linear R&D process is the way to go. But even the the, the reason chose this project to work on you heard what i mentioned right it's a combination of how's it gonna improve things for at&t and the world at&t it was already at that time focused on how do i build new products so right. it wasn't just um only you know abstract at academic uh interest in a domain it was always interface so the reason the project was selected was different the way that it has to get to market over time is different so, um, you know, the process is clearly not this, um, I, I was just surprised young guy, like, you know, wow, you know, nobody, nobody is paying attention to this, you know. The world has seemed to come full circle though on this, right? In other words, now every research thing seems to be waiting just to be commercialized. I, I want to get back to this concept though of, I didn't even know I was an entrepreneur. Don't you think this is in a way kind of still true today for the first time somebody build something from scratch. Like I just have so many stories like this from when I was a kid where like one of my dad's friends was really into X, whatever it was. And then he was into Y and then he was into Z and he was just trying to find some way to make money and literally feed his family. And then one day he just had this thing that just exploded. He had no business experience, no like marketing experience, nothing. And then he had to figure out on the fly, oh, wait a second, now I'm a businessman. I didn't even know that before. You know what I mean? So this idea of taking yeah. something from research into commercialization, you said the first time I didn't even know I was doing it, but I wanted to build something. Yeah. I think that's true for most people, no? I mean, sure, you can I run me through the great. SMART program and how that works now, right? Where you have targeted research that has a goal of becoming commercialized in five years, now that works. But I think for most people, they're just like, God, I really wish I could get a taxi home from this presentation without having to wait 35 minutes in the rain. So there's a lot here, especially what you said about how we come full circle actually we came full circle in a way that um so so we're doing caricatures of everything right we're actually quite quite inefficient and we're going to see the consequences of this over the next couple of years but i agree with you 100 percent that that's how it's supposed to work and how it how it has worked in the past right what we've been doing in the last 20 years is kind of uh on all of those interfaces you know um we've been trying to structuralize this and 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 we're not letting people follow their normal path so what i mean by this is that you know there's forces wanting to make you know like you go to college and you choose to be an entrepreneur right, right? you just say, i'm gonna i'm gonna academically learn how to be an entrepreneur and this is like you know like a disease over the last 20 years i have a, a good friend and i wrote my my innovation book with carl Tram. We used to be the head of the Kaufman Foundation. And, you know, he said, you know, you can correlate the new entrepreneurship programs with a decrease in productivity growth. <laughs> and <laughs> but, so, it, but it's super uh, interesting, right? Because in a way, it's kind of like entrepreneurial cosplay, for lack of a better term, right? Like when you were doing it, you weren't thinking, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You just like you went through the absolutely. steps and figured it out. Yeah. So how does that translate, though, into the SMART program where you're trying to institutionalize it? but not make it so rigid that you take away exactly those That's feelings correct. of we got it kind of thing. Right. So there's the, okay. So if you look at long-term research, there's yep. a problem of two conveniences, which are kind of, you know, further structuralization. So, you, you know, if you say, well, I can't predict the future, right? We can't. Right. So it's all very complicated. Like what I, what I was doing at Bell Labs, trying to figure out how to bring this thing forward. Yeah. So complicated. I have to focus on my research, right? So one answer is, um, look, I just do research in whatever interests me. And, and then uh, it's the world's problem to, to figure out uh, where it goes. So that has led us down to a path where, you know, there's lots of studies now showing the world as more and more countries get into the research game. You know, we have more and more investment in, in research and um, the 
most studies are showing, of course, that the, the worldwide productivity growth has been going down, right? So wow. now I'm not arguing research is not good. It's just that it's obviously a necessary but insufficient part of this, right? And so the other solution is, oh, well, I'm going to structure it so that we target something that we care about today, right? That everybody cares about today and a very specific thing, you know, like, oh, this is like the thing we have to solve today. And then I'll do research, which, you know, takes 10 years, let's say, because if you're on a right research project, I don't have it all figured out or whatever. And of course, you know, if you, you and I know the world, I mean, you came from the finance, you know, 10 years from now, the markets, the industries, you know, everything's changed, right? So clearly what we've been doing is all wrong. It's not going to lead anywhere. And it's in between these two things, right? You have to start off with great uncertainty, but still embedded in the world and understanding what the world looks like. Get your research results. And as the world evolves around you, kind of steer those research results towards phenomena that's going to be, you know, able to have a big market impact uh, in the future. So I think it's this, remember the process you were just describing where the individual's going through. If you think about that process, it's a search for value, right? You're not, you're not preconceiving all of these things. It's a search for value. And so essentially, if I had to summarize, you know, how we should be launching these long-term research projects, which we're embedding in SMART, it's sort of saying, look, we openly admit we can't predict the future. Right. We, we start off with uncertainties that we want to solve, but then we're doing as we go forward in the context of the real world, we we search for value as we move forward and we decrease uncertainty in the research domain. And that is essentially, from your background, essentially the investment process. We haven't joined investment process to the sort of activities, long-term activities of and you're right. The problem is that people want to overstructuralize it, which means you squeeze out uncertainty, which means you create no value. That's the problem. Yeah, but also you then eliminate people who don't have access to those institutional programs from actually inventing or creating things from scratch. Whereas if I can't get into program X or program Y, it doesn't preclude me from actually thinking about where that search for value ends, right? So it's complicated the, yep. the number of things that are sort of platform like to transform things in the future, offer lots and lots of people entrepreneurship opportunities that are not affiliated with that first platform, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so that that's where, what we're trying to do is the platform things. We're saying, look, if I transform biotech in this way, if I transform integrated circuits in this way, you could be somebody in the world that once those things are underway, you could see I can build a business on that platform. And so that's kind of the way to look at it. Yeah, we are kind of oversimplifying everything. We're saying, ah, everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody's a long-term innovator. Everybody could be. The truth is not, I mean, you can't, that, that can't be the case, right? No. But, you know, we have to know where are we doing the sort of real fundamental platform transformation things? Where Where is it that people that don't have the luxury of those long timelines and these institutions or whatever, you know, um, how are they going to build business on top of that? And anyway, that's that's kind of how I bring all that together. Can I get your view on, and again, I'm a, I don't even know how to say this. I'm not nearly as knowledgeable about this as you are, right? But I do follow this, right? I've been into tech for my whole life. I remember carrying my first Macintosh when I was in college and just thinking, okay, I can throw away the whiteout and the typewriter now. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, still have yeah. to borrow it because I can't afford to buy one, but I can still borrow it from that dude and that dude has plenty of money. I'm going to borrow his Mac to write my paper because it's just so much easier. But if I'd predicted to you, and I just want to use, again, Apple as a proxy, if I'd predicted to you in 1990-something that Apple was going to go through two trip chip transitions, right? One from PowerPC to Intel x86, and then into running their own chips based on ARM. You may have said, sure, but the rest of the world would have laughed at me. As you watch that progression, and also your own research and development in the electronic materials and semiconductor space, can you just walk me through like what that looked like to you, and then what it portends for the future of chips and electronic design going forward? So those jumps are what I call business-related jumps, right? So they're broader than just technology. That's during the phase of Moore's Law continuing. And so from my point of view, as more looking at so the Bell Labs thing that I was just talking about, um, 
this sort of strained silicon stuff. That was because we didn't exactly know when silicon would change, but we knew that kind of just shrinking transistors in every way was going to run out of steam probably within the next 10 years. Right. And it would have actually, that's the invention that we did. So the strained silicon was necessary to allow the beginning of what's called equivalent scaling. So the numbers you see today that describe the dimension of the supposedly dimension of the transistor, there's really, there's no relevance to those things, really just like the next density of transistors. Right. And that started way back in 2004, which was the first deployment of strain silicon in products. And what it allowed was the density of transistors to continue, even though the dimensions of the transistors, the gates and all that stuff were not progressing as fast as they were uh, before. So that's a great, it's a great, interesting story. And about, there's another transition for me where when you do something really important, you start to get a lot of aggression from the marketplace, <laughs> you know, because I think as a scientist, you, you kind of think, oh, it's great. You invent this. Everyone's going to love this. Like, Everything to love it and be happy, right? <laughs> and sort of that, if you if you're doing something that's gonna, you know, be a strategic problem for one of the large semiconductor players, they're gonna they're gonna come after you, right? right. So this was this was another uh, growing up thing on the business side that that I do. But so those transitions, I think I was thinking more like, how do I keep? How do I? How do I? You know, the original idea is how do I invent something, and you could you could progress in those chips in a different way. That was the original idea. But what happened was while we had this the, my first startup company, we we're going out talking to the leading edge guys, and they all started saying, "No, no, we want to use your stuff with actually um, Moore's law." Right. And I was like, "Wow, um, they must not be able to make the next transistor, right?" So that was pretty cool. <laughs> it's a hint, like, right, into what they're going through. Yeah, yeah, you got the keys to the kingdom, right? They're like, we can't build, you know, the next generation of transistors, right? Yeah. So, and, and that was very exciting. So, so that transition, then I would say, is is IBM had very good R and D for all those years, and uh, manufacturing. You know, their business started, you know, first with uh, the services business. Remember yeah. the IBM ship thing. You know, you know, over time, what happened is just less important to the company, and then Intel you know, aggressively tried to position the X86 all these years. But then what happened is that, you know, risk was always going to be more efficient for mobile, but that took years to appear, right? Yep. And then it's usual classic uh, disruptive, the, the real Christensen definition of disruption, which is that it grew in, uh, you know, in the background. But then when when it's available in a mobile and good for mobile, people are like, hey, can I just use these for you know, my data center, can I just use it? Yeah. So it's this long, long path. So, so yeah, it wasn't too surprising, but there are other things going on in the marketplace that, that cause those transitions to happen. And what are you working on now? So now um, this 10 year program we did at SMART was to say, okay, all that stuff is maturing, right? So even as, as great as that was, right. We launched this in 2010. We said silicon integrated circuits because it's the manufacturing of the world and semiconductors. Where is our new silicon chips going to be really, really important? And how do we make those with an advantage you can't do just with silicon? Right. right. And so as we started the research program, and then after um, after all these years, we've been able to have a, a create all of the research pieces that we needed to essentially put gallium nitride into uh, silicon integrated circuit. So you still have all the transistor for, for CMOS and all that, but you add gallium nitride and um, it allows you to build new kinds of integrated circuits that are important for AR, VR, 5G, 6G, things like this. So we've essentially said, look, silicon is gonna be re, you know tasked to create new kinds of integrated circuits over here. And in those spaces, you'll have volumes and value that's similar to the microprocessors of the past. So computing kind of matures, memory kind of matures, and they become commoditized over time. And it's these other chips that determine all of the value in the system. So, um, and I think people are seeing that just now, but we saw it 10 years ago. Now we have a startup company in Singapore. It's a new integrated circuit company, which I think is the 
you know, really kind of the first, you know, new integrated circuit company in decades because based on some new aspect of, of silicon. Are you getting the same response that you got when you did this initial strain silicon thing where you went there and said, hey, we have this thing. And they were like, okay, look, don't tell anybody. Just get away from us. If we could shut you down, we'd do it right now. Are you feeling the same thing? And if you're... Absolutely. Absolutely. You are, right? Yeah, totally. And, and this is... This is I, I'm amazed you brought up that point, actually, because that was another thing I couldn't believe. So so after Straight Silicon became pretty famous, right? You know, in, in the this kind of community, yeah. right? So so I was thinking, you know, okay, now I've been verified, right? Like this is right. like, not that. It's like Fort Kelvin all the way to commercialization and all this sort of stuff, right? And... And I was still pretty young after that process. But then when I started saying in, in uh, you know, probably around 2008, 2009, this is going to be the next thing. Yeah. I was surprised that, of course, I got attention because of who I am, but, but it was the same process all over again. And then I realized that there's this innovation process going on, which is a dominant thing that, sure, you have some, you know, uh, reputation and ability to... Um, you know, interact, I, I, I knew manufacturers better and things like this. But the fact that same every time is instructive, right? Yeah, Which, it is, right? Yeah, it's about management. Man and on my side, it's managing uncertainty. On their side, it's always managing risk right away. And that part doesn't change, right? So, but I was shocked because it's kind of what you were just pointing out. I was like, well, I see the same thing over again, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at some level, great entrepreneurs are like six-year-old boys, right? They're just so excited about the thing that they've created and they run into the living room to tell mom and dad, I got this. But in the middle of that conversation, mom and dad have company over where they're drinking, you know, champagne and smoking cigars. You're like, you're interrupting us right now. Yeah, exactly. No, right? it's true. It's but that's true. what it feels like. Well, know. not only that is that I remember in Strange Silicon, I remember there was a moment where uh, because we had been talking to the cool thing about that was because everybody needed it. At one point, our little small company was interacting with every semiconductor, like big semiconductor company in the world. So we actually had a better picture than any of the individual sure. ones about what was going on in the world, which people forget. There's a huge advantage for startups with new things, right? You actually yeah. get a better picture because everyone, not, not everybody's interacting with the large companies like that, right? So, so, um, and and I remember. Um, we, so we were talking to CTOs of all the semiconductor companies and they were still a little bit in this mode you're talking about literally because, you know, you can see momentum building, you can yeah, see yeah. things changing. and about like over one year, there are public statements on this topic of strain silicon switch. And now they're like, I, I used to have this view. I, I wanted to, I had the slide which had all these quotes and I, I lost it over the years, but there was a slide I put out where every one of them came out and said, well, we all know <laughs> right? that strange silicon. We all know. And this was like in a context of like a year or two, right? right. And it was such an interesting learning experience for me because it went from like still naysaying to like everyone knows this has to be deployed like within two years. It's it just crazy. And it tells you that, of course, invention and research can't be separated from these kinds of processes because that's how it goes to market, right? So you run these risks though, right? Like I like to say, every time I have an idea, I like to socialize people about that idea slowly so that by the time it becomes inevitable, you're already there. But you run this risk, right? Of if I start telling people too early, maybe they'll go and do it. And then the other thing you realize is you just have to learn how to out-execute people. So you can't be afraid of that socialization process. We do this all the time in our business. I'm sure you do it in yours now. But again, it's the way you present it. You can't present it like I said before. And it's me being guilty of this, of like being like that six-year-old kid of like, I did it. I, I, I had the erector set and I build this thing and it's here. As opposed to, I'm just in the middle of this process. I'm testing out this thing. I think it's going to be important, blah, blah, blah. And by the time you get to the point where it's there, They've already gone through that one to two year process of everybody knows that strain silicon is important. You're already there, no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, it, it is the same in the end. Although, you know, I like you said, independently had to figure this out. Right. But um, if you look at the first company, strain silicon company, um, I think my co-founder and I was my first, one of my first grad students, uh, Mank Balsara. 
he and I, I think we talked to over 40 companies in the supply chain, you know, from, uh, you know, materials level, process level, all the way up to, to end product, chip design companies. And what I learned was that in hindsight, just what you said, we're kind of saw. You know, we didn't know we were doing it, but we're kind of softly selling this right. thing, even though we're trying to find hooks so we can progress. But you're also simultaneously, like you said, preparing. And then what happened is when it became important, everybody started coming to us. Hey, those guys, those trained silicon guys, right? Let's go. Let's go talk to them. So it is the process you talk about. One advantage we have in, in what we do is we're going to talk about these sort of longer term, you know, people calling it deep tech kind of things, is that it takes longer for people to believe. Also, the barriers to entry, this is a huge thing. In your business, yeah. the barriers to entry are low, but the barriers to entry in, in our stuff are pretty high. So when, I mean, of course, that's where finance comes in because they're looking for that moment where the barriers to entry is so high. When you have something super fundamental like this, the yield can be very high at that moment, right? So so that's kind of the uh, little bit difference. We have, a, like in this new company, we have a army of intellectual property built behind it which took right. you know a decade to put together we have all these research results we have all these partners you know that kind of stuff right so but it's still the same process you're talking about same process do you have philosophical discussions internally as you start developing more and more non-trivial technology right and as you've seen the progression from let's go back to strand silicon where it went into its first product in 2004 and that excitement around that and now building something completely different, again, in your search for value. As technology advances, it becomes so much more powerful in its ability to process information. Do you have these philosophical discussions around, we can take these chips and then create things that mimic the use of an eye or the use of an ear or can sense smell and can take haptics to the next level, next level and as you said, can create these immersive experiences using VR and XR. What is the philosophical, not ending, but outcome of these things? Do you have these discussions as well? So not only can you create these technological innovations, but what's the impact on society of them too? Are you talking about that as well? I think we talk about that when we think of the market spaces. There's so much, you know, in all the dimensions that we've talked about that you know, you, you, you're pretty laser focused on those early markets and trying to match your production to that and all this sort of stuff, right? And you have your customers and the customers are reputable, right? We don't do, so you don't really talk about the, the side thing. Although um, in the current age, I would say, you know, this sort of uh, semiconductor thing becoming a geopolitical football, the other applications of semiconductors becomes into play because we try to steer away from you know those kinds of things right so i would say that uh, you know but in terms of you know if apple google meta meta um, all these guys are able to build the uh you know the metaverse and by the way my view of the metaverse looking from a chip point of view is just it's just increasing man-machine interface. I think people look at this in some sort of strange way. All it is, is that we've been merging. We've been able to go into machine world and machine world has been able to come into our world and it's increasing with time. In fact, go back to the telephone. That's the metaverse, right? Because you're projecting your voice over distance and people all of a sudden are like, it's like they're over there, but they're not, right? And right. all we've been doing this whole time is kind of merging those two worlds more, more like what you and I are doing right now, right? And it's a natural progression from my point of view. And I look at it kind of in a different way. So I just look at it as increasing productivity, increasing living standards. This is what it'll do. I don't have a big philosophical thought on, on sort of, you know, we should stop innovating or inventing or anything like that. No way. But here's what I do think. This idea of this increasing the man-machine interface is actually something that's really important to me. At some point, virtual reality becomes reality. We can't know at any level the interactivity that we have with any other interface, what it's going to bring or where it came from, to be fair, right? So I like to think about this a lot and I like to think about it in the context of media. I'll leave you with this thought too, though, right? If you can build chips 
that are powerful enough to recreate virtual reality in a way that looks like reality, then this experience that you and I are having is going to dramatically change. We're working on this, actually. We are. Just so you know, so that instead of you and I looking like we're in a box, we're working on this thing to use the most advanced technology to be able to make it look like you and I are in the same place and that we can change that place in real time in the same way that I can do here, this, right? Yeah. But I, what I want to do is I want to build this thing and we're working on this so that you can actually be on that mountain with me and, ch and change the tenor of the discussion. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think that's, I think that's coming and people underestimate. I, th I think, you know, I look at, at people's reactions to the metaverse and it's, it's just like when I go out and talk to people manufacturing about our new, our new semiconductors and trying to design integrate new things so i can make new kinds of integrated circuits what you find out is a lot of people their imagination isn't broad enough to to see or their experience and imagination isn't broad enough to see what is really possible and they underestimate the impact of each one of these stages and you can see that if you look backwards right and i think it's true just what you're saying for sure which is that the you know real telepresence people have dreaming about for a long time it's not this thing that's just like, oh, yeah, we'll just kind of do that. And then, you know, I'll have better Zoom or something. People underestimate that they picture Zoom and they go, oh, it'll be like a better Zoom. And it's like, no, 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 no. It'll be like a whole different way to have productivity. And, you know, it'll change transportation. It'll change travel. aging. It'll change travel, all this stuff, right? And I, I think that's the reality, and that's what's next. And we want to build the chips that are important in that world, right? So that's what we're doing. That's the perfect way to end. Professor Eugene Fitzgerald, the CEO and Director of Singapore, MIT Alliance and Research Technology, an entrepreneur, a professor, and just so much more than that. This was such a killer conversation. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you so much for doing that. I did, Michael. Thanks very much. It was great.